You're listening to the sermon audio from Mill Creek Community Church. If you like what you've heard or want to find out more information, please visit our website at mymillcreek.com. Today's scripture is Romans 13, 1 through 7. This is the word of the Lord. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection not to only avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes for the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. That is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, as we come before you right now, Lord, I ask you to humble our hearts to who you are. I ask you to open our hearts and our ears to your word and to your spirit. I pray as Jeremy is speaking that he is just proclaiming your name and your glory and that everything we do, we understand, is to point to you. In your precious son's name I pray, amen. Thank you, Sarah. This past July found myself reading a book that was recommended by one of my buddies, uh, 1776 by David McCullough. Neighborhood was celebrating with fireworks, and this two-time Pulitzer Prize winning book was what I was walking through, and I found it fascinating to be, to, to learn, maybe to relearn, because I don't remember this happening in American history class, maybe you do, to learn how close America was to losing in the revolution. Like, America was on a shoestring budget. Just, there's not enough money to go around. You maybe knew that. I was learning that from McCullough. Um, You maybe knew we had no gunpowder, which I found ironic, seeing as in my cul-de-sac there was probably more gunpowder going off on July 4th than the entire Revolutionary War. If you saw something from your house, it was probably my neighbors. They're crazy. I also thought it was fascinating to to learn that it was so unlikely that America was going to come out on top. Like, Vegas did not have America winning the Revolutionary War. Great Britain was going to crush us like a little ant, and that was that. And yet, God bless America, man. We were shooting fireworks off, and America overalls and do-rags with the flag on it and all that happening. But the part of the book that was also new to me but became a mind grenade was the theological controversy in the early colonies on whether or not America should have revolted against Great Britain. Now, maybe you all knew this already. I didn't. But there were churches and, and, and Christians and pastors who really struggled over what the Bible had to say about rejecting King George III in the parliament and starting a new government ourselves. There were churches that were divided, split. Some pastors and congregants got on a boat to go back because they were loyal. Others were patriots and fighting for the revolution, and what was so fascinating to me as we sat there shooting fireworks off, enjoying the show, was thinking to myself, was the Revolutionary War biblically justified? Pro tip, neighbors don't give a rip about that question. (laughs) At least the neighbors I was talking to. What would you like to guess? A primary scripture that churches 
Christians and pastors wrestled through to discern whether the Revolutionary War was biblically justified. Romans 13, 1 to 7. Good morning and welcome to Mill Creek. I am excited that you are here, a little nervous about what's about to come out the pulpit, because if you didn't notice, we are talking this morning about politics. Uh, If ever there is a radioactive subject, this is the time and place, because it just touches so much of what is happening in our contemporary moment. And maybe you've noticed churches often fall into one of two extremes when it comes to politics. There are the churches who find politics in every text, and it's like no matter what the scripture is or what the series is, they're going to talk about politics. It's like there's a letter in the text that starts with P. P, that reminds me of politics. Let's go there. (laughs) And then then there's, there's, there's churches who are like, for the love of all that is good and holy, never talk about it. <laughs> and um, I feel a little more comfortable over on this side of the spectrum. But God in his wisdom and sovereignty decided to bring politics up today in the text. And so the kind of, ser- kind of preacher I want to be, uh, that I aspire to be, for sure the elders that Mill Creek has are going to allow God's word to drive the preaching agenda. So when politics comes up in the text, we talk about it. What we're going to find then is this text will show us that the gospel ought to change us politically. In fact, that's, that's my sermon in a sentence this morning, that the gospel should change us politically. The gospel should actually do something in us and shape us, and it's not the other way around. Now, This morning, I want to make this argument that the gospel should change us politically, but the way I want to do it is a little bit unique. What I'd like to do, if you'll allow me, is to consider Romans 13, 1 to 7, against the backdrop of the American Revolution, and I want to kind of talk about some of those issues before the end of the sermon using this framework that we create to consider some of our contemporary challenges So if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, would you open to Romans 13, 1 to 7. Let's begin with this scripture against the backdrop of the American Revolution. Now, before before I get into 1 to 7, remember where Paul's at in this part of the letter. There are three main parts to Romans. If you're new to Mill Creek and and, and, uh, this sermon series, you should know that Romans chapters 1 to 8 are a section 9 to 11 is a section, and 12 to 16 is a section. It's all one letter, but there are three parts to Paul's letter. And the first part is all about gospel doctrine, the gospel foundation, the the floor upon which this gospel is, is built. And it is quite clear that God is good and holy, and and all of us are sinners, and we will face judgment. And before God, we are not righteous. You're not righteous, I'm not righteous, none of us are righteous. But Jesus Christ, he was righteous. And if you trust in Jesus, at judgment, he would make you righteous. In fact, he will make you righteous today. This is the good news, the gospel. And, and for eight chapters, Paul's making that argument. Part one is, you can be righteous because of Jesus. In part two of his letter, Paul says, now look, Some of you thought that the gospel was only for Jews, but it's for everybody. And God's heart is for the world, and God's going to keep promise to the Jews as well. And that's part two. And then part three, which was beginning in Romans 12, Paul explained, hey, that gospel that I was explaining to you, it should actually change the way you live. And we spent a couple weeks ago talking about how the gospel, there there are ingredients to a healthy church that the gospel gives us. And then last week we talked about how Love should shape our relationship with those in the church and outside of the church. And what Paul's doing then is he's going, hey, the gospel actually changes the way you live. And today we come to the topic of politics. And and Paul's just continuing his train of thought going, the gospel actually changes real relationships. And today we're seeing how it changes our thoughts about politics. How was the gospel to change the way Roman Christians lived and related to the government? In the text, verse 1, let every person... Be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, 
and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. So Paul, as you can see, he wastes no time right out of the gate explaining his expectation was for Roman Christians to be subject to the government. That is, the authorities and rulers. When I say government this morning, I'm using that synonymous with government and rulers. And this whole idea of politics then is this partisan power play we see happening today. That's the way I'm using those terms. And so the Roman Christians were to be subject to the government because, middle of verse 1, God put those rulers in their position. That's why. Now, my guess is some of you already might be having a little bit of an allergic reaction because it's like, but I don't like the authorities and rulers that God has instituted right now. So I just assume you don't read that part of the text. <laughs> Paul is so clear. In fact, he reiterates three times in these first two verses, six times almost in seven verses, that God is sovereign over those in power. In these first two verses, look right there at the verse 1. There is no authority except from God. End of verse 1. Authorities in power have been instituted by God. Verse 2. God appoints the authorities. And just in case you missed it, he's going to hit you three times with the same truth. Paul's logic, I mean, what he's arguing is that God appoints governing authorities. That's this first idea. I'd love for you to write that down. Here's the first principle. God appoints governing authorities. So it, this time and place, Nero in Rome, was put there ultimately because of God's sovereignty. In Jesus' time, Pontius Pilate and Herod were put there by God's sovereignty. It follows in 1776, it was God who decided King George and the parliament would have authority. So God appoints governing authorities. Moving on, not only does God sovereignly appoint the authorities, but in verses 3 to 5, Paul calls the Roman Christians to submit to the governing authorities. Let me show you from the text. Verse 3. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who's in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for you haven't bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. What Paul's explaining here is that it's only those who disobey governing authorities who ought to be afraid. Or the word in the text is terror. It's only those who disobey the law that should be afraid. And well, why should they be afraid, Jeremy? Well, because, because they don't bear the sword in vain. Well, wait, what does the sword mean? The sword, actually, this very term is used in Romans 8.35 and is symbolic of life or death. It is the government's God-given authority to punish those who break the law, ultimately even with capital punishment. The death penalty is what it equates to in our modern day and age. So, so bearing the sword then is symbolic of the government's power, and Roman centurions would literally have a sword on, and if you jacked with them, all right, they could kill you. So Paul's saying two reasons to obey. First is because they'll kill you, or they can if you disobey, and secondly, because conscience often nags you and says, oh, you should obey the rules, man. You should obey the rules. So for both those reasons, Christians should obey. And governments then are empowered to act as servants of God, empowered to carry out God's wrath on wrongdoers. Remember in the previous passage, Paul said, do not avenge yourselves individually. Somebody does something to you, you don't take the law into your own hands. No, that's the role of government. And here we see it's government who is invited and empowered to avenge. 
here brings us then to the second principle. Christians submit to the government's laws. We could say Christians are to obey the government's laws. I'd love for you to write that down. This principle was true for Paul. He would need to obey the government's laws. This is true for Jesus Christ. He submitted himself to the government's laws. Uh, principles true in 1776 in the colonies. Two principles down. Final principle from verses 6 and 7 from the text. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. Just in case anyone missed the point that God puts authorities in their place, Paul's making it explicit again. And the logical conclusion that he's driving at is that Christians are to pay government taxes. That's right there in the text. Pay whatever's owed. Tax, revenue, respect, or honor. Third principle, love for you to write it down. Christians pay taxes to the government. True for Paul. Of course, this is true for Jesus because he's the first one we have on record in Matthew 17, 24 to 27, where he said, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, give to God what is God's. So this principle was expected of the Roman Christians and would have been true in 1776 too. You're supposed to pay your taxes. And it's actually this final point that has me convinced that Roman historians are correct in their hypothesis that part of the problem in the early Roman church that Paul's writing into is they had a bunch of Christians who said, we're not going to be paying taxes to this pagan government. Do you know what Nero does? Do you know where he spends our hard-earned tax dollars? We're not going to pay. And it was actually creating quite a division. I know the text doesn't tell us that concretely, but that makes the most sense. And some historians have confirmed that was potentially going on. And so I think that's why Paul's so clear, like, no, 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 time out. You guys need to know Christians do pay taxes. So these are the three principles we find in Romans 13. I hope you're following Paul's argument. You submit to governing authorities by paying taxes. That's Paul's argument. Submit to governing authorities by paying your taxes. All right, with this in mind, let's return to the theological controversy in 1776 and see how what Romans 13, 1 to 7 squares with the American Revolution. Remember, some historians might quibble about details, but here's some of the five broad brushstrokes for American history that I'll refresh you on. Maybe you remember this. First, you might remember that Great Britain had been raising taxes for the French an Indian war. Remember, there was this big war and the colonies needed to be defended and Great Britain said, we will do the noble thing and defend you. And then once it was finished and Great Britain defeated the enemy, they decided it kind of makes sense that since we were protecting you, you should pay for that. At least it made sense to King George III and so that's what they did. And they started taxing us out the wazoo. That was first factor. Factor two, any of the imports that started coming into America, they decided, tax that as well. Factor number three, tensions were beginning to be created and unrest was growing. And so Great Britain decided to send the redcoats or the lobsterbacks, remember, they sent them over here. And so there's, now there's lots of armed soldiers, which didn't do very well for the colonists. And that led to this like standoff where you've got a bunch of people in Boston and surrounding the soldiers and then it's called the Boston Massacre where some soldiers shot and killed civilians. Uh, but still Great Britain wanted more taxes so they started to tax the tea and there in Boston Harbor some crazies decided to dress up like Indians, go onto the ship and they threw all the tea into the Boston Harbor. That is the tea party, remember that tea party for us? Not a party for King George who in retaliation said, well, I'm going to tax you for that too. Y'all paying for French Indian War, all the extra stuff, and you're going to have to repay us for those taxes. Patriots didn't like that idea. More tensions, more taxes. It ultimately led to the Battle of Lexington and Concord and the shot heard around the world when you've got a professional army against some militia who are like, we ain't giving you no more money. 
That's the Jeremy version of 1776. But if you listen closely, you'll hear that had a ton to do with tax. But with Romans 13 and this brief history lesson in mind, had we been there and we are working to be biblically informed Christians, submitted to the text, could we, in view of Romans 13 and the principles we've just considered, legitimately find textual support for not merely responding in civil disobedience, but responding with revolution? Could we? Is remember, civil disobedience is very different than revolution. Civil disobedience is respectfully breaking the rules and then taking the punishment that comes. Gandhi comes to mind. Martin Luther King Jr. comes to mind. Civil disobedience. Revolution, taking guns up and shooting at people, killing them, overthrowing the government, that is a different animal than civil unrest. So does Romans 13 give us textual support for the American Revolution. I'm going to answer that after I say a little disclaimer. I don't know what you hope I say, but whatever you hope I say, I want in your heart that you would say whatever the text says. Let that be the framework. My desire is all of us would push pause on whatever sort of political leaning we might bring to the table naturally, because that's what mom and dad felt, or that's where I grew up, or that's what I'm really rallying to right now. I wish we could push pause on all that and just go, really, for a moment, can we just try to think about the text as our Supreme Court, and then filter this question through the text? Here's my answer. I do think taxation without representation sounds awful. Okay, so I hate that idea. And if I was there, I would not like them taxing all the imports and more, trying to take more and more of my money. And while I might have gotten worked up about such rules, based on this text, I don't think you have support for revolution. I think if you're going to read this text at face value, you can't make a biblical argument for throwing over King George III and the parliament, no matter how nasty they may sound. But before you throw firecrackers at me and then walk out, let me acknowledge, first, I have, I have sim vastly simplified the factors that went into the Revolutionary War, and I have identified a very unique scripture to make this argument from, because virtually every commentary I referenced about this section noted that there are no exceptions in the text. That what I'm saying is I make quite a convincing argument that Romans 13 doesn't allow us to have revolution because there's nothing in Romans 13, 1 to 7 that suggests we shouldn't obey. And, and that's actually what's unique about this text and is a little bit of a head scratcher. Why is it that Paul gives no exceptions? Because Paul would have known about evil governments. Paul wasn't a fool thinking that every government leader was ideal. And of course, he would have known about Pharaoh. He was an awful government leader. And Jesus, with Pontius Pilate and Herod, Paul would have understood that there's these other factors to consider. I mean, Nero, ultimately, if you know your history, he ended up throwing Christians into an arena and letting animals eat them for sport. Nero would dip Christians he find in oil, hang them up and light them on fire for streetlights. So why in the world doesn't he give us any exceptions here? And the most satisfying answer I could find to that question is because the Roman Christians would have known about biblical exceptions. Roman Christians would have understood what the Old Testament teaches and what the early church understood to be biblical exceptions for civil disobedience. Which means if we are going to do proper business with this question about 1776, I think we need to take into account what the rest of the Bible says about the topic. So you hardcore America people, hold on, let's go to point two and consider what the rest of the Bible says against the backdrop of the American Revolution. Big idea number two. And what's the rest of the Bible say? Now, I'm going to be quick on this point because 
this isn't the main point of the text that we're in, nor is it my goal, believe it or not, to actually talk you into my view of the revolution. In fact, I do whatever you want with the American Revolution. I got a bigger goal in mind. We'll get there in a second. But if the revolution is going to be a litmus test, if we're going to use it as an example, let's take into account what the Bible teaches for the biblical exceptions when we can disobey rulers. All right, there's six of them. Do you know them off the top of your head? It's okay if you didn't. I didn't either. But now I do, and I'll share them with you. Six times in the biblical storyline where characters disobeyed governing authorities. Number one, the Hebrew midwives in Egypt. If you remember Exodus 1 and 2, Pharaoh said, kill all the babies. And the Hebrew midwives said, no. And then when it wasn't happening, Pharaoh's like, what's going on? And the midwife said, they're just so good at giving birth, Pharaoh. They're so fast. Good example, disobeying a law. And of course, this saved many babies' lives, including Moses, who would lead the people out of slavery. Second example, Queen Esther, who disobeyed the royal edict not to enter the king's throne room. She entered the throne room in Esther 5, risking her life. Again, her disobedience was used by God to save God's people. Third example from the scriptures is Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Do you remember them? They were there in Daniel chapter 3, and they were commanded to bow down to this false idol, and they said, nope, and they got thrown into the fiery furnace. Fourth example, also in Daniel, Daniel 6, they make a law, you can't pray. Daniel doesn't give a rip about that law, he keeps praying, and then they throw him in the lion's den, which, side note, let the record show, if you decide to disobey governing authorities, you pay a dear, dear price. And these guys made it out alive, but how many modern-day martyrs pay the ultimate price, you know? Fifth case of civil disobedience, Matthew chapter 2, King Herod said, tell me where that Jesus is. I want to come worship him as well. Then the wise men realize he's a joker and he was trying to kill Jesus, so they disobey King Herod. I find it interesting that two of the examples of civil disobedience are to protect babies. Final case of civil disobedience, Acts 4, Peter and John, they are forbidden to preach Jesus. And they bring them before and say, you quit preaching Jesus. And then they say famously in Acts 4, 19, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. So it's like a game of chicken. Like you, fine, you guys got to do whatever you got to do, but we're going to preach Jesus because that's what he told us to do. And it's these six examples then that draw a helpful conclusion. Many have said it before. Here's an overarching principle for civil disobedience. When government commands what God forbids, or when government forbids what God commands, Christians submit to God. That, I think, is a good definition for you to write down and keep in your pocket. As we're talking about civil disobedience, if, if God commands something, we do it. If God forbids something, we do it. And when the government passes a law that says the opposite, we got to submit to God, not the government. Here then, I think, is the warrant for civil disobedience. Like Peter and John, willing to disobey and suffer the consequences. But I think it's important to note, Peter and John weren't trying to overthrow the government and or become lawless rebels bent on anarchy. They were willing to be punished if that's what it came to. They were going to do what God said. By the way, this principle the elders captured in our Essentials, Convictions, Preferences document. This is our attempt to be really clear on our positions of theology. If you've not seen that, it might be helpful if you kind of nerd out on this stuff. This is in our preference section, here's what we say. All Christians living under earthly government should submit to the government's authority for the sake of peace and our witness to the world. However, Christians are also citizens of heaven. So when government demands obedience in conflict with the Bible, Christians must obey God. Here then, I think, is the guardrail for Paul's 
best case scenario in Romans 13. So, so to the person who reads Romans 13 and goes, yeah, but when should I not obey the government? I think this is the guardrail from biblical context. But when government does what it should do, Christians should submit. That's how Pastor Tim Keller puts it as the default position. Here's his quote. The default position of the Christian to the state is to submit. The default position of the Christian, yes, every Christian, to the state. Yes, any state is to submit. That should be our default attitude. Which again is what Jesus lived as an example for us and commanded. Paid to Caesar, what is Caesar's? Gift to God, what is God? Now, having offered biblical exceptions, let's return to the American Revolution and realize some Christians in 1776, some pastors, some churches, they thought King George III and the Parliament, they are outside of their God-given lane for authority. They are not the type of authority that Romans 13 has in mind. And because they're breaking the rules for their God-given authority, we can break our rules of needing to submit to them. That was the argument. Make sense? That, that's how they were. Churches who held the Bible high said, well, since you're not doing what God called you to do, we don't have to submit to you in the way God calls us to submit in Romans 13. That was their argument. And is it a point worth considering? Of course, this is the history of our country. Um, but in my view, the tension that it creates is all the biblical examples are examples of civil disobedience, not overthrowing the entire government. There are no positive commands or supportive texts for revolution in which you kill people and overthrow the government. In fact, Peter, when he gets out his sword to try to overthrow the soldiers in the Garden of Gethsemane, Matthew 26, 52, remember what he does? He cuts off a guy's ear, Malchus. Jesus heals Malchus's ear and then says, Peter, put away the sword. I'm not saying King George and the Parliament were doing right by the colonists. And I don't want to give the impression that I'm not really grateful for the United States of America. I think the U.S. has done some wonderful things, and God willing, the U.S. will keep doing wonderful things. And I had a flag out on July 4th while the fireworks went everywhere. And the only reason I took it down was for like a couple weeks when I thought the Broncos were going to do good. But I've replaced it back with the American flag again, so I'm... Proud of the United States. What I'm wanting us to consider, though, is that it is one thing to disobey governing authorities. It's one thing to disobey a government's laws respectfully. It's another thing to take up arms and lead a militia in a revolution. Phew. Still with me? Now look, can you disagree with me? Of course. Do I grant that I could be wrong? Yes. Might I get 115 emails that I have to read through and respond personally and you guys send me some blogs that I read and then I change my mind? Of course. So don't freeze me here. Maybe I change my mind tomorrow. I'll, I can change my mind. You can change your mind. But like I said, my real goal is not to talk you into my view of 1776. Instead, my hope is that this litmus test has helped solidify how crucial it is to always return to the scriptures when we're drawing our conclusions. That's what I'm really aiming at. That we would be the kind of people that goes, yeah, but what's the Bible say? By all means, shoot some fireworks off and sing some patriotic songs and high five on July 4th. But if we're going to talk about what's right and wrong, well, what does the Bible say? Because God's word should be our authority, and the gospel does change us. It changes the way we are to love one another in the church. It changes the ways we're to love one another outside the church, and it's supposed to change us politically. But having done this work, reflecting on Romans 13 and the biblical exceptions, what are some implications for us now? Let's move to our final point, the Bible and government today. I'm going to walk through a couple examples for us today, leave you with a few principles. A couple 
examples today. Keep in mind Paul's argument from our text. Submit to governing authorities by paying taxes. That's his argument. If Paul were here, he'd go, yeah, I'd maybe choose some different words, but that's my idea. Submit to the government by paying taxes. And we've seen there are biblical ways that we can disobey the government if they're disobeying what God has commanded. So we've seen the guardrails. And so we acknowledge few governments live up to the ideal that Paul's painted in Romans 13. But let's take these principles then that we've considered and press them into some modern examples, shall we? Number one was the storming of the Capitol on January 6, 2021, biblically justified. Based on what we've seen in Romans 13, I conclude no. Despite what people might think about our Constitution or what they might think about the Congress or despite what people might think about the election, whether it was a legitimate election or not, I see no biblical warrant for storming the Capitol. Were folks justified in rallying earlier in the day? Absolutely. That's perfectly fine. Can folks have strong opinions about the legitimacy of all of this action? Certainly, it's in bounds. But there is a line that is crossed when you move from a rally and from picketing to actually storming the Capitol. And from my view, in my understanding, and again, you may need to correct me, but what I would call was lawlessness as people stormed the Capitol. And, and there's no doubt Paul rejects lawlessness. And I don't think Jesus is storming the Capitol. Number two, what about the city riots that were happening when people were burning down cities? Were they biblically justified? I conclude, not based on scripture, no. I don't think you, I don't think you have a biblical case for burning cities down. Is civil disobedience justified? Yes, I'm fine. I think you should be fine as well. If people are demonstrating in a civil way, that's all right. In fact, I saw some videos of downtown Kansas City at the plaza, and I noticed some people were just standing there in support and, and, and trying to draw attention to their frustration and confusion and what they saw was unjust judicial system. That's all fine. But when civil disobedience turns into lawlessness, you cross a line from the text. There is no biblical warrant for looting or destroying cities, etc. I don't think Jesus is throwing a brick through a window to try to make a point. Again, can folks rally together to share their sentiments and call for change? Yes, absolutely. But there is a significant difference between civil disobedience and the lawlessness. These city riots. And ironically, in the way the political spectrum works, the more you get to the extreme edges, the more it's like a horseshoe. It's the way I've heard it described. The spectrum is not just a line, it's a horseshoe. And the further away you get, it's interesting to me, people on the edges, they have the same strategy. It's lawlessness. You may want something different, but they're using the same means to get there, going beyond civil disobedience. That's beyond the text. We're not trying to do lawless anarchy. Hot topic number three, how does the gospel inform vaccine mandates? Is he serious? <laughs> I thought I'd just ask Ricky to come up here and say a few words about that real quick. Go big or go home, people. Okay, how does the gospel inform vaccine mandates? For those, for those here who in clear conscience can submit to the government on this front, I think you're justified to get the vaccine. Meaning, you look at what the government has asked you to do and you say, yeah, I want to submit to the government based on Romans 13. And if in your conscience you go, yeah, I think that's the right thing to do, 
then that's what Romans 13.5, especially about the conscience, is saying. That if your conscience goes, yeah, I think I should do that, and the government's telling me to do that, then you can do it. You can take the vaccine. For those who cannot submit to the government on this front, if you're able to biblically justify why you're declining the government mandate, and if your conscience affirms it, then you have biblical grounds for civil disobedience. Now, I know, and you do too probably, that there are Christians who are screaming at you on social media or on their blogs that all Christians have to do this. And there are Christians screaming in the same channel saying, you never, Christians can never do this. So there's people making extreme arguments on both sides. In my view, both options, hey, I want to submit to the government and I don't have a conscience issue. In fact, my conscience tells me I should. That's, that's a solid biblical position. As is, man, I've got biblical support for not taking the vaccine and I can't in good conscience. That's in the range. Both are in range. I would suggest if you're, going to, if you're going to cite a religious exemption for this vaccine, I would, I'd encourage you to be consistent and think consistently about vaccines. Meaning if you've never had a conscience issue about something else, I would just be interested to know what your argument is for why this one is a religious exemption in that example. But I trust and I'm going to give you the benefit of the doubt that if you came up to me and said, yeah, here's all my rationale, I'm, you might have some info I don't have. And so, um, but at this point, I think you have a strong biblical case for submitting to the government with a vaccine mandate and for rejecting the government to the degree you have a biblical argument for it. But to a related, slightly different question, do I think the government is outside of its lane if it mandates vaccines? In my view, yes. Scriptures give us three dominant spheres of power. There's a sphere of the government. There's a sphere in church. There's a sphere in the family. And the idea is that each would stay in its lane. And so do I think that the government might be guilty of getting outside of its lane to mandate what happens personally or with children? I think, yes, I do personally. You don't have to agree with me, but that's, that would be my view. The, the biblical idea is that each of these spheres is to operate independently. So the government is not to tell us what we are supposed to do in a worship service. And that's what the separation of church and state really means. I just thought it meant you can't pray in a public government building, but that's wrong. That's not separation of church and state. The separation is the church isn't trying to tell the government what laws it has to enact. The church isn't making laws for the land, and the government isn't telling us how we have to do worship service. The church can speak about what's immoral, but the government makes laws. The church runs private worship. The family makes these decisions for its family, and it seems to me the government is overstepping when they tell individuals what vaccines they must Take Again, you are free to disagree, but as you disagree, let's not just give partisan talking points. Let's make biblical arguments for our biblical positions. You might want more on that. That's as far as I'm going right now. Final question before we get to a couple principles. Jeremy, are we biblically required to vote in elections? Are we biblically required to vote in elections? I've heard the argument made that because of the way that the American Constitution reads, if you're an American and you can vote, you must. That argument's been made. Maybe you've heard it. Oh, you're a Christian and you don't vote? You're basically disobeying Romans 13 because you're supposed to submit to the government and our government wants you to vote, so by not voting, you're not submitting to the government. You are in sin. All right, if we're going to evaluate that question, we want to re remember that the Bible is like a line, and we always want to stay on the line of the Bible. And, and Satan loves it to get us off the line. He can, he can get us above the line and adding rules to the text, or he might want to take us below the line, removing what the text says, making it more licentious. And, and in my view, Satan doesn't give a rip if he goes up or down. You want, hey, can I get him to be a legalist? Yeah, let's add some more rules to their lives. Oh, can I get him to just ignore some of what the Bible says? Fine, let him do whatever they want. He, he just wants us off the line. So... With the line in mind, what does the text say? Romans 13, I do think there is an implication that it is wise for those who can vote in an election to vote. I think it's wise. 
and I could see somebody saying, man, I do think I ought to vote. For what it's worth, I voted in the recent election. I intend to vote in future elections. I think it's wise for you to vote too. But if you came to me and said, man, I just, I really feel like Christ died for the sin of me not voting. Am I right? I'd say, I don't think it's a sin. I don't think it's a sin. Now, if you said, oh, I really feel convicted in my conscience that I should have voted and I didn't, well, now we're talking a conscience issue. And we're going to get there in Romans 14. But the way the conscience works, the conscience can make a right thing wrong, but it can't make a wrong thing right. Conscience can take something that for lots of people is fine, but all of a sudden your conscience says it's not okay for you, and then you have to follow your conscience, even though other people don't have to follow your conscience. More on that when we get to Romans 14. But now having done all this work, you've done such a fine job of following along. Three, Three principles I want to offer to you as we get done. First, the Bible is our authority. If you're new to us, let me show you all our cards. You don't answer to me. The elders aren't standing up here saying, submit to us just because who we are. We all, all of us stand under the Bible. This is God's word. And whatever it says, we aim to understand it and apply it. This is our final authority. It is the Supreme Court. It is infallible. And we believe this text. We believe the whole text. Whatever's in the text, we're going to seek to submit to it. And while... There might be, perhaps all of us would say, yes, we all agree on the authority of the Bible. We may disagree on preferential issues. That's why this entire thing we've been talking about falls into a preferential issue out there in in our essentials, convictions, preferences. Civil disobedience is a preferential issue. So it's okay to disagree, but what I also want to do is just lower the temperature of all this. It doesn't have to be so radioactive. And you don't have to find a new church just because you think one slight degree different than me on something. The Bible's our authority. And to the degree you disagree, okay, well, just let the Bible be your, guard, your, guard, your guide and allow the gospel to change you politically. Number two, the Bible explains the Bible. There, there's loads of churches and pastors who can find one little verse, take it out of context, and then build a whole sermon around it. But we got to make sure that when we interpret the Bible, we interpret the Bible through the Bible. Otherwise, you could take Romans 13, 1 to 7, pull it all the way out of its context, and make it say something it shouldn't say. And in fact, I read a report of an authoritarian dictator-like man who did this. He got all the clergy in a room, and he said, I've read your text. Romans 13, 1 to 7 says, you must submit to my leadership And he's killing people. And the clergy in that room were brave enough to say, that is a flat reading of Romans 13. You don't understand how the whole scripture works. Let us be the kind of Christians who ensure that the Bible explains the Bible. Finally, and this most importantly, Paul's primary argument, as Christians, we believe that God appoints leaders and we submit by paying taxes. This is his big idea. And and in this way, we say, hey, whether we like the leaders or we don't like the leaders, you put them into place and we're going to pay taxes and submission to you. And and in so doing, we become model citizens in the United States. And, And if our country tells us you can't obey God, then we obey God. And if, and if they command us to disobey God, we still obey God. Otherwise, we live as model citizens, which is exactly what Jesus did, right? For remember, Jesus lived under a government that was cruel and unjust. Ultimately, though, Jesus submitted to the government, and in so doing, he was submitted to God, and it cost him his life. He went to the cross, submitted himself to the cross, and then what happened because he submitted himself to the cross? Do you remember? He's put in the grave. Three days later, he's resurrected, and then God puts everything in submission under Jesus. You see how this works? The biblical pattern for God is Jesus submitted to the Father, and then ultimately, Jesus is exalted. And so when we submit to the government, we're actually submitting to Jesus Christ ourselves. This is what Paul's calling us to do. Submitting ourselves to Jesus who is more concerned 
with the gospel going wide than he was with having even his own personal righteousness and justice enacted in this time and place. Christ was willing to go to the cross and endure it all, endure it all so that gospel salvation could go to the world. This is the way then that gospel should change us politically, that we would be willing to submit in good conscience to what God has given us so that the gospel would be able to go wide to the world. It changes us personally, the gospel changes us relational, it changes us corporately, and it should change us politically, which in fact this is done for me personally. If you heard at the beginning, you know, some pastors like to preach on politics every week. I'd like to preach on politics never. But the gospel's changing me too. And I hope the gospel's changing you. And I hope however you're feeling about this sermon or however you're feeling about Mill Creek's political position or however you're feeling about your political position in the country, I hope, I hope what becomes dominant for you is viewing it all through God's word. So I've heard it said that a lot of people will change their church because of politics, but very few people will change their politics because of what the church is preaching. And may we be people who submit our politics to God's gospel. Amen. Will you pray with me? Now, Lord, I pray you take this and you would use uh, Romans 13 to grow us more like you. Uh, give us great wisdom as we seek to take your word and interpret our world through it. Give us wisdom. I pray you'd give us clarity and, and, and you'd, allow our, uh, you'd allow our conscience to operate as you intend. And Lord, give us grace to live in these troubled times. Lord, if there's anybody here who doesn't know you, Spirit, I pray you would be working through your word to draw them to you. In Jesus' name, amen. If you like what you've heard or want to find out more information, please visit our website at mymillcreek.com.